Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Creative Control with Vish Khanna. It's a very special week on this show because I'm dedicating four episodes to interviews with every founding member of one of the world's greatest rock and roll bands, in my opinion, The Jesus Lizard. David Yao, Mac McNeely, Dwayne Dennison, and David Williams Sims each ended up in Chicago at some point in the late 1980s, and then they went and changed things. They were a dangerous, precise, profane, and devastatingly great band for 10 years. They made amazing records, and they played great shows between 1989 and 1999. And then they came back to play some more shows in 2009. This past March, a Brooklyn-based publishing house called Akashic released Book, a gorgeous coffee table photo book that captures the life and times of the Jesus Lizard via thoughtful essays and reflections about a truly significant past. Now, beginning this past February, I tracked down each member of the Jesus Lizard, and we talked about Book. It took a while to get everyone pinned down, but we did it. And for whatever reason, here I am at episode 89 of this show that I make in Canada, and I'm dedicating a week to the Jesus Lizard who played their first show on July 1st, 1989, Canada Day, at a Chicago restaurant called Bangkok, Bangkok, where they opened for Slint and King Kong. Good Lord, I was 12 years old when that happened. I wish I'd gone to Chicago. 80 episodes ago... David Yao was on this show to talk about his solo album, Tonight You Look Like a Spider, and his forthcoming uh, book about cats. Well, it's cat puns, really. It's called Copycat. You'll hear more about that in a, in a little while. And, and David Yao is here with me again now, talking about being the singer in The Jesus Lizard. I don't know how things work or why they work the way they do, but here we are. So here it is, The Jesus Lizard Week on Creative Control. Have fun. This week, the Bookshelf Cinema is screening Philomena, Gloria, Singing in the Rain, Nymphomaniac Part 1. By the way, those are on the same day. Quite a double bill. Alan Partridge, The Lunchbox, and more. At the E-Bar this week, on April 18th, Kazoo presents Lady Hawk, Marine Dreams, and Dutch Toko for an exciting all-ages show. I mean, I'm going to be there. That's exciting in itself, right? For me. 
The Bookshelf is an independently owned culture hub located at 41 Quebec Street in Guelph. Visit bookshelf.ca for more information. Okay. Yeah, I was looking at your website today. I was um, this will be my second uh, time with you. What I was episode nine, I think. Yes, that's correct. <laughs> yes, you were on. You were on the ninth episode, and I mean, you and I have spoken uh, many times over the years. It, it seems now. In fact, uh, well, we would have spoken only once in the nineties, uh, but uh, yeah, we've spoken a bunch, and uh, it's always, you know, I'm a huge fan. It's always nice to speak with you. It's my pleasure. Yeah, yeah. Now, I want to begin by asking you about a book in general. The the Jesus Lizard always seemed somewhat enigmatic to myself, to others. I mean, you guys did a billion interviews, but this book is like an outpouring, I think, of you know background, explanation, and context. Can you talk a little bit about what prompted this idea to not only reflect the band and, and all its history, but I think bear so much? Um... I don't know if I can. Uh, we, um, I don't remember exactly, exactly how the idea of the book came about. I think that, um, as I recall, initially I was talking to Johnny Temple, who uh, you know plays bass in Girls Against Boys and runs the Akashic Publishing uh, Company, and I think that originally we talked about possibly me doing a book like whether like a novel or a series of short stories or something like that and um i told him i didn't i wasn't so um, interested in doing that and at some point the the idea of doing a book on the jesus lizard came up um i don't i can't imagine that that would be my idea because i wasn't um originally so into the prospect um, but the more, wherever, wherever the idea came about, <clears throat> we all sort of, um, talked about it, uh, for a while and threw ideas back and forth and finally decided that, okay, well, let's do it and make it as cool as we can. And, uh, we sort of made a list, as I recall, of, um, stuff we wanted to have in it, stuff that would be, um, you know, uh, autobiographical about each of the guys. Um, uh, technical stuff, stuff that uh, there would be no other source mm. of. Does that make sense? Yeah, 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 totally. Like you, you wanted it to yeah. be very much uh, constructed by the band in a sense that no one else could even have a crack at doing what you've done kind of thing. Right, and even, even some of like, the four photos on the back, you know, like uh, you... Uh, there's no way that, say, um, an unauthorized biography would get a hold of pictures like that. Right. Stuff like that. Yeah. Right. They're like family archives. It's 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 very. It has a familial quality. The book in general. Oh, cool. Yeah, I mean, like, uh, I, there's obviously uh, anecdotes about your personal lives and your families and how they may ha- or may or may not have 
impacted the you know your creative lives your your actual lives if you will but um and and then all the kind of voices that make up the book clearly are friends and friends to the point of they they seem like family members almost uh that, that revolved around the band yeah i i would, I would concur with that yeah. um yeah i think that we had a really, really long list. Um, I wonder if I have that list somewhere of people that we wanted to contribute to, uh, uh, you know, participate and contribute in some way. And, uh, you know, some people never got back to us. Some people said they would do it and never got around to it. And some people, uh, politely declined, mm. but, um, yeah, they, they, most of them were in some way, it wasn't, they, I don't think anybody that we asked was like a far reach, you know, it was all like people, at least one of us somehow knew or were somehow sort of friends with or somehow close instead of just completely out of the blue, you know, journalists or rock stars or whatever. Right, right. You, you, in your initial statement there, you kind of suggested that you had reservations about a, a book about the Jesus Lizard. Can you maybe amplify that a bit? Why, why were you cautious to revisit this and and reflect the band in in a, in a book? Um, I think partly because, um, gosh, some of this I'm going to feel bad about. I'm gonna, it's going to be like uh, talking bad about other folks but there's there have been a couple things in the past that were um uh jesus lizard stuff where i had nothing to do with the design or the look of it and uh i didn't like them i I was really unhappy with the the whole uh the way it looked and everything and um i thought something this important as a book something that would uh that would carry that much weight would have to be something that I was happy with the way it looked. And, um, so when we were first discussing the, the idea of the book, I put forth that, okay, well, I have to design it because otherwise I'm just going to be, I'm going to hate it. Mm -hmm. And, uh, everybody was cool with that. And so, um, uh, that, (laughs) that, that pretty much was the, uh, uh, the uh, the catalyst, the thing that uh, said, okay, well, well, if I can do that, then, um, then it's okay. But then I started working on it and um, color correcting and cleaning up photographs uh, for about over two years. Huh. And um, uh, that put a huge strain on my relationship with my girlfriend because I wasn't making any money and I wasn't doing anything that was making any money. And I was spending all day, every day, just fucking with these photographs. Before, before I even sort of really got into the look of the book itself. Mm. And uh, yeah, and then then you know, got sort of the overall look of it. And after a while, I handed it off to um, Henry Owings of Chunklet Magazine, who uh, did a tremendous job uh, of sort of uh, taking the ball and running with it. Now, so you're saying that your initial apprehension was due to aspects of the past, but particularly design aspects of the past? Are you are you saying that you had problems with album artwork, or what are you referring to there? Um, 
uh, some of the, like when we were on, we did two records with Capitol, and stuff that they would do outside of the record cover, like uh, whatever marketing ideas or whatever the fuck, um, I hated the way it looked. And then uh, there was a, I don't want to, there's a, there's some other things, and I don't want to name names just because I feel shitty, but um, uh, I felt that I wanted to have control of what it looked like. <clears throat> and I mean, I ran everything by the guys, and, you know, they had to get their okays, but... Mm. Okay, yeah. <laughs> that's fair. That's fair. I mean, I, I'm just as you're talking, I'm thinking back to passages in the book where you're very complimentary about uh, the cover of, I guess it would be Head, isn't it? And maybe is it Goat as well? I don't know. Basically, anything with. Oh they... no, no, I'm I'm happy with all the record covers we had. Oh okay. I mean, uh, uh, David um, sort of designed um, Pure and Goat. Right. And then. Um, but I mean, I laid all that stuff out. Me and uh, and later uh, a fellow named Matt Taylor, who was sort of the art department at Touch and Go. <clears throat> no, it's not record covers. Okay, that's that clear. I was unhappy with. That's clear. It's kind of the external. Anyone who did something external to the band in terms of marketing or whatever seems to not uh, not have always hit the mark. Is that basically it? Yes. Okay, that's yeah. fair. that's fair. Thank you. <laughs> that's fair. That's totally fair. Now the photos are great. Like the photos in the book are are excellent, and the Polaroids are really cool. There's a certain uh, as you're flipping through the book or reading the book, you shouldn't flip through the book. You should sit down and read the book. <laughs> <laughs> you can you can stand if you want. <laughs> sure, although it's very heavy. I don't think I I think you should have a back brace on if you're standing and reading this book. I think it's quite weighty. Um, but no, there throughout the book, there are these uh, overlaps of just uh, Polaroids that seem to have been taken throughout the existence of the band. I mean, uh, uh, maybe I'm wrong about that in retrospect, but they, they are mapped out in a sequence that suggests uh, that, that they, this, is hap- this would occur throughout the band. Can you talk a little bit about those Polaroids and maybe how they became, or at least have been designed to look like they became a recurring part of the band's history? Um, I don't remember what at what point, but uh, David Sims got uh, this old Polaroid camera. Maybe it wasn't old. Maybe it was new at the time. I'm not sure. But, um, yeah, he would take it on tour and would just take snapshots all the time. Um, and, you know, who doesn't love the way Polaroids look? Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> but when we were discussing what should be in the book, David mentioned that he had, you know, whatever, four or 500 Polaroids. <laughs> and uh, we we decided that that had to be in there, and also the way the most of the book is really sort of clean and uh, um, sort of precise-ish. Uh, I like the idea of handwriting the names of the people on those uh, Polaroids and just sort of throwing them in there like that. Uh, Henry Owings did a wonderful job of putting those together the way he did. Mm-hmm. I think I don't recall if he chose which ones were on pages or if I did or what. But it's interesting when it first shows up, I think there are Polaroids of three people who have passed away since uh, there. There's uh, there's uh, Timmy from uh, um, Tim Taylor from 
Brainiac, mm-hmm. and there's Straz, who used to work with the uh, um, uh, oh, I can't ugly dance, um, Keepone and uh, Guar and stuff. I think there's one of uh, <clears throat> John Loder, but uh, right. yeah, so all right. these all these dead people. Uh, and well, <laughs> what is that? I mean, obviously, there you have a that 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 speaks to some sentiment. Uh, you bring this up because you just find it sad or odd or um, because well, mostly because I think that the one of Tim and the one of Straz might be on the same page. Oh, I see. And I, that that's just happenstance. Right. Right. Okay. And did this <sighs> did this Polaroid camera appear and last uh, throughout the duration of the band's existence? You'll have to ask David. David, okay, that. okay, okay. Because I, I can't. <sighs> you can't quite tell. It, they just, as I say, these overleaf, overlap, overlapping pages just sort of appear randomly. It seems almost. Yeah, I don't. Um, I don't know what at what point he got that uh, that camera, but I do think that it lasted until the end of the band. Okay, <clears throat> that's cool. No, it's, I just I'm curious about it, and I also wondered if it was a because it's a, it's ostensibly a photo book. I wondered if it was some kind of comment on photography or, or something uh, in terms of design and an idea to have it as a recurring uh, part of the book? Um, I, I don't know how to answer that. Uh, mostly, <laughs> you know, uh, uh, stuff to look at that that if you like the band, you might go, oh, look, I know that guy, or there's me, or, you know. <laughs> okay, <clears throat> very simple, okay. Uh, two things that appear regularly in the book are your nipples, and um, and an- another pair of things that have show up a lot are your butt cheeks. I'm just curious. When did you, when did you become such an exhibitionist, and and maybe even why? Can you have you ever articulated this? Um, I have. Uh, I recall when Scratch Acid played. I don't remember the name of the place. I think it was the venue, or I don't. I don't remember what it was called. But it, the only time that Scratch Acid played in Seattle in the '80s. <clears throat> I think it was uh, sometime in earlier mid '87. Uh, it was a, a big show, sold out, tons of folks and stuff. And at the beginning of one of the songs, this guy um, pantsed me. He just kind of like pulled my pants down. Uh-huh. And um, I thought, you know, I'd seen that happen before when I was at shows. I'd seen uh, Gibby from the Buttholes get pantsed. I'd seen Bucks Interior get pantsed and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. So I thought, okay, well, you know, try, try and be cool about it. Don't freak out and stuff. And I decided that I would just, it was the beginning of a long song. <clears throat> and I thought, okay, I'll deal with this when the song is over. And uh, I looked over to my left, and there were these, there were two, two or three girls sitting on the side of the stage sort of chuckling and pointing at my uh, lower parts. <laughs> and I looked down, and, and it was like a, <clears throat> I had the head of the dick without the dick. It was just this tiny little thing, and I felt really, really kind of uh, embarrassed about it. <clears throat> and afterwards, I spoke with David Sims about that, and he said, "Don't worry, girls know that dicks are like accordions." And so I felt a little better. But I think that that was the first time I was ever naked in front of an audience. And I don't know if I, I, I don't know how or why I decided that that was the thing to do so many times. Right. Like when we, when the Jesus Lizard did our reenactment tour a couple of years ago, 
um, you know, I'm old enough now that I know that nobody wants to see this <laughs> decrepit, old, tired, wrinkled, you know, thing of, that's me with my clothes off. And and it made me think, like, how audacious of me to have ever done that in the first place when I think of the other guys in the band's view, you know? Like Dwayne's, you know, trying to play the guitar, and then he looks up, and there's my ass or something. <laughs> right. I, I feel... God, what a what a what a presumptuous jerk I was. Well, when you say that, as you uh, when you did the reenactment uh, tour, you started to feel maybe a little more self conscious. Does that maybe insinuate that, let's say, in the prime of your life uh, as a performer, that doing such, you know, exhibiting yourself in such a way made you feel I don't know what the right word is, sexy? Was it thrilling in a way to to put yourself out there? Well, Doc, um, <laughs> uh, I'm just curious if we've gone to a, if you got to a point where you're like I don't think I, anyone wants to look at me anymore. There must have probably been a point where you were like I want people to look at me. I got you know <laughs> I got I got some stuff. I'm gonna think, put it out there. Well, obviously, yeah, obviously there was some sort of exhibitionist uh, thing, um, but I, I swear to God, I don't, I don't understand. I don't know why. I don't know. Uh, hmm. Because, uh, I mean, I didn't get off. It didn't, it didn't like, you know, I didn't get a boner. I wasn't getting, like, sexually uh, satisfied by doing that. And it's not like, you know, later at the hotel I would, like, jack off or anything <laughs> thinking about it. I was naked in front of all these people. So there was never any kind of, like, sexual reward from it. Um, I don't know if it and, – and I don't think that I'm too egomaniacal. So I don't know if it was I, – I don't know what it was. I think it was um, – a lot of alcohol, um, a a need to uh, entertain. Um, there, there is this, I, there is this sort of reading of you as a performer as being confrontational, and I don't know if you agree with this or you understand what it means. Uh, and I'm curious to hear your thoughts on it because, on some level, ex- you know, stripping yourself down that has a primal quality to it. And and it kind of does make it a little, if I might, again, I want to hear what you think about this word, confrontational, because I know it gets bandied about a lot in in recollections of you at your, you know, gnarliest or whatever. Uh, what, what do you make of that term and maybe how it plays into, again, now you're right, this is getting into psychiatry or something. But what do you? <laughs> I'm trying to. Hold bring... on, let me lay down. <laughs> you weren't lying down already? Oh, okay, that's not good. No, um, <laughs> yeah, I'm sure you are. <laughs> I'm just reclined. I'm totally relaxed. Uh, <laughs> no, we should be skyping this. <laughs> no, I'm just curious if you can talk about that. Like, do you think of yourself as is it is is it possible for you to be objective enough to think of yourself as a confrontational performer? Well, it's possible for me to be objective, but I don't think of myself. I understand why people would say that it was aggressive or confrontational. Um, I didn't think of it that way when it was happening. Um, I mean, I've seen photos and videos where, you know, I'm right in somebody's face or like I'm smacking somebody or hitting them. I, I should look up a definition of confrontational. <laughs> I mean, uh, I, I mean, it wasn't it wasn't pointed aggression at anyone in particular. Mm-hmm. It was um, 
You'd think after all these years I could have gotten a stock answer for this. But, um, I, I assume people ask you about it from time to time, and I'm not, you know, I'm just curious about it because a lot of the photos, it's very vivid. Like, your your interaction with the crowd, I mean, I got to see the band a lot, and uh, and I know what it was like. And, I, you know, and there's enough YouTube footage out there that people can figure out what it was like. But there's something about the photos that really brings it, it's so, some of them are so stark, and it just seems, and, and so, I don't know, it, it, they have a danger to them. And there is a danger to seeing the band. There was a, maybe danger and confrontation are interchangeable in this context, but it just seemed like you wanted to unsettle people a little bit. And flat- that's, that's, that's a really good point. And danger is a much, I, I like, I much prefer that word. Okay. Because when, um, when I was sort of coming up in the punk rock scene in Austin, Texas, uh, it, they, it was oftentimes dangerous, you know, as a, as a lot of punk rock, you know, across the world was. But I really liked that. I really liked, um, <clears throat> particularly bands like the Dicks, um, where, or the first the first show I ever saw was a band called the Huns mm-hmm. in Austin, the first punk rock show, and uh, you know, there's a good chance that you might get hurt by somebody in the audience when you're there, somebody in the, um, in the band. And, uh, that, um, notion was amazing to me because before punk rock, you know, nothing like that ever even occurred to me. Like Mm -hmm. how would you ever be intimidated or frightened by, you know, the band who you're spending your hard earned money to see, you know, you're not going to go see, Yes, or Led Zeppelin, or Emerson, Lake, and Palmer, and be afraid that maybe one of them's going to hit you in the head with their bass guitar. <laughs> you know, right? And this <laughs> this this spoke to you. I think it did. I really liked the sort of um, n- no uh, barrier between the audience and band kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, um, I, I liked the the interaction. And it was, and it was, although although sometimes dangerous, it was all in fun. I mean, rarely was there any time when I was malicious, and and if I ever was, it was provoked. Right, <clears throat> right, right. Okay, all right. Now I want to. I guess I should get. We and I, I appreciate you answering this question again. I, I imagine you. We've already established you've been asked this many times, and. And in a way, it's kind of refreshing that you don't have a stock answer because it's <laughs> it's uh, maybe a little complicated. But in terms of the book, it does have this interweaving chronology, uh, I find, where there's a sequence to... There's a structure and a sequence to the book, but then some people write these essays or reflections of the band, and they kind of jump through time and space a little bit. Do you know what I mean? Like someone will just write a kind of comprehensive overview of the entire band when you're still just reading about goat or something like that. So like you've kind of, you're kind of taken out of that time as opposed to an oral history. It's like a, there's a lot of jumping back and forth. Does that make any sense? Um, I don't, I, I don't know. I guess I haven't paid that much attention to that aspect of it. Um, I felt like, um, like that, that's something that Henry did. Like he put the chronology in the, of it. And I thought, um, I, I didn't have any complaints about that. Yeah. I thought that it was cool that he had, the first written piece he had in there is by Corey Rusk, who ran Touch and Go. I thought that, that was really cool. Yeah. And then I think for 
for the great most part, it's sort of chron- chronological, but I don't know if, um, I don't know, maybe the pieces you're talking about were um, uh, so broad that, I mean, where where would you put it? Just at the end or... I don't know. I don't know what to, how to address. No, that. I, and I appreciate that. I think some when I've read other oral histories, a person who's re- reflecting reflecting upon a scene or a band will appear briefly to kind of hit at that moment that is being covered, and then that person's later recollection, you know, recollection of a, something that happened further on down the road, would appear later. Like you know, as the book is going on, you would. You would get to the. Oh, I see. It's just interesting that well, someone um, someone suddenly talking about Capitol Records before we've kind of gotten there. You know what I mean? Like, or gotten to the end of the band before we've got. And I'm not I'm not complaining about this. It's just an interesting structure. Um. Yeah. I don't. I don't know. That would be something that we'd have to ask Henry. But I think that probably what that is is that um, the I I'd have to look at the book to make it certain. Uh-huh. But I think that the guys in the band are the only people who show up more than once. Everybody else, like they wrote their piece, yeah, and we stuck it in. Right. So, uh, you know, for what you're talking about, you would have to edit the thing, like you know, take out that part from what they wrote and put it later in the book. So right. maybe it was just difficult to find a little spot to mess all that that piece into. I don't know. It's kind of, it, to be honest, it's quite unique. Uh, I, as I say, that the example that I'm citing is what most people do, like in a magazine article or a. I, I can't cite too many. Well, no, I've read I've read some oral history books, and it's kind of the same thing. You you hear from someone, they keep showing up throughout. But you're saying that maybe consciously Henry and maybe the band decided that the band would be the recurring figures. Everyone else kind of shows up, done. Well, it, it was just sort of that's the way it happened. I mean, mm. <clears throat> Mac, David, Dwayne, and I all wrote several things, yeah. and um, we asked other people to write something, and we said, you know. Uh, you know, write a sentence or write, you know, 10 pages. But I don't think anybody wrote more than one piece. So mm. that's just the sort of, you know. Yeah, you might be right about that. I, I can't recall off the top of my head. I know that I also got the impression that gradually the band members seemed to be disappearing or that they'd have weightier roles, uh, weightier pieces, and then slowly... I mean, yours gets smaller and smaller. <laughs> you know, you write your kind of biographical piece, and then the rest of your... Most of your contributions are little tiny blurbs, you know what I mean? Yeah, I did that intentionally, because um, historically, you know, journalists want to talk to the singer, and whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, that's just sort of the way it is. And mm. So I've, I've done thousands of interviews, I don't think Mac and David and Dwayne have done thousands. Right. And um, so I wanted them to talk more than me. Okay. I figured that if if you're familiar with the band and if you've read stuff in the whatever on in the papers and books, magazines, online or whatever, it was probably coming from me. Right. And so I, I figured give them some uh, space. Right. Okay. That's fair. Uh, for some people, the Jesus Lizard, I think, is, is a real musician's band. Like, every member is regarded as one of the best to ever do what they do by the people who saw them and listened to them. And I, I've never thought too hard on that idea like I mean, of you guys being a musician's band, because I just I just love the band. But I do think it's interesting that Dwayne and David, in particular, spend a lot of time in the book, I feel like, talking to musicians, like in terms that maybe only players might appreciate. Um Oh, for sure. Yeah. Are you are you a musician? I am. 
<laughs> I am, but I, I mean, my point is, I, well, I'm curious, was the respect of your peers possibly more meaningful than from anyone else? Um, what? Was the respect of our peers more meaningful than... Than the respect... No, no, no. Was the respect of your peers more meaningful than the respect of critics, fans, anyone else? It just seems like... In some of the passages, it seems almost instructional. It seems like, you know, there's passages right. where, where you're talking, they're talking in particular about the music, the structure, um, tones, right. gear, lots of like gear talk, you know? And I, I well, David, especially David. I mean, we, when we first, when the book idea first came about and we were making our list of things that we should uh, touch on, uh, there was the autobiography stuff. And, um, Dwayne and Mac and I finished ours before David did. And then when David finished his, it was kind of like not so autobiographical as much as it was uh, informational about the recordings of the records and mm -hmm. stuff like that, which um, which is perfectly fine. Uh, you know, there's no need for uh, David to, just because, you know, Mac and David and Mac and Dwayne and I, said, well, we were born on this day, and my mom was like this, and this happened when I was in elementary school. Um, his, his is more um, technical and informational, but um, I think that's just because that's kind of like the guy he is. He's not so interested in telling anybody about his personal life. Yeah. Um, Dwayne, on the, Dwayne, when he talks, it's kind of like teaching, you know? Uh that's kind of the way. That's kind of the way he talks. You know. Yeah. No. That's fine. It's just. It, it kind of. I just am wondering if it. I don't know. As I say, I've had conversations about the band for many years with people, and and some people are like, ah, you know, like there's a feeling that it's it is like truly musicians really seem to be among your biggest fans, if that makes sense. And it's and that's no, it's true. It's true. And you know, Dwayne is now giving lessons online. And I put it, I posted a thing on it on Facebook and within, I'm not sure, within like 10 hours, there were. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend, but what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Five hundred likes and however many comments. People saying like, "Oh my God, that would be like learning from God." and all this stuff and Dwayne wants to be he said he wants to be the internet guitar lesson fella. <laughs> well that's great. And uh I think so too. I think that's just that's a really cool thing about the internet where, you know, somebody in Istanbul can 
take guitar lessons from Dwayne Dennison. Right. Okay. So it's not. This was never. This never felt like any kind of hindrance. This idea that your initial, you know, your your the people who are most passionate about the band were primarily musicians, and and maybe a general audience might. I mean, I was just trying to approach some of the passages as someone who doesn't know anything about what these guys are talking about. And just feeling like, would people be alienated to hear, like, or would they be interested in hearing all this, like, really technical, like, time time signature stuff, and this is the gear we use. It's just, I, I know, you know, you've written this book for fans, but I'm just curious about that relationship and how you view it. I mean, clearly you're you're happy with it, this dynamic of... Oh, I'm, I'm very happy with it because there's that, but there's also so much other stuff that is not technical or, um, or uh, sort of structural or informational I, I think it just helps the sort of breadth of the book yeah you know? okay that's cool yeah. do you, do you, what yeah go ahead sorry no no go on i was just gonna say does do you see any kind of divide then are you are you kind of do you see the band as having more let's say i'm gonna say this male fans than female fans as a result of maybe how you know, technically revered you are in a sense. Did you ever notice that even? Is that a thing? Is that just a myth that maybe more dudes like the Jesus Lizard than anyone else? <laughs> I, like the, I, like, I like the way you enunciate dudes. <laughs> um, no, I think, well, I think in general, you know, um, sort of aggressive rock is more often than not a, a dude thing than it is a chick thing. Mm-hmm. But, um, uh, yeah, yeah, I, I think I think it I think it is more of a dude thing, you know. There were certainly more dudes at our shows than there were chicks. Mm. But there was also um, there's a hand, I've I've heard girls talk about how uh, they thought that we were sexy, that we were that we had swing, and uh, I think Elizabeth um, Dwayne's wife, our lawyer, in her piece, I think she even says something about how we were sexy. Yeah, which, geez, uh, <laughs> that's. Uh, that's 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 funny. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I don't know. I, it's, there's there's certainly a grinding, swinging aspect to the band. I mean, I can't I can't speak. I am not a woman in any way, really. Well, maybe a little way, no. but I can't really relate to. Well, you're Canadian. <laughs> wow. Um, yeah, that's true. That makes me maybe more woman than I know. Um, <laughs> we're pretty hardy. It's it's cold up here. We're pretty hardy. I don't know if anyway. Yeah, yeah. Now we're just getting sexist. Okay. Uh. <laughs> okay. Well, wait, wait. Here's um. You know, you're talking about swing, and this is not really really here nor there. But um, when Dwayne is on, when he's doing good uh, with whatever interviews or just anything in life, when he's really on, he's really really funny and clever. Yeah. And I remember one interview quite some time ago. The interviewer was saying something about swing music and. And he said something about the Glenn Miller, and uh, Dwayne said, "Ah, he couldn't swing if you hung him." <laughs> and I just thought that was so. Good. I don't know if he heard that or if he made it up on the spot, but I loved that. <laughs> yeah, no. I there's... also happen to know that he does, he doesn't mean it. I think that he does like Glenn Miller. Well, that's that's another thing that's illuminated in the book. I think that for all the kind of aggression that's ascribed to the band. There is this underlying wit, this charm, this grace to everything that's being done. And I feel like either by by way of the band articulating it or uh, people external to the band kind of commending it, that kind of comes through. There's more 
layers to this. I mean, that's the big thing about this book. There's just a lot of layers to this band that uh, that are beyond the records and the live show. That's that's wonderful to hear. Yeah, I I concur. Yeah. Now, I want to ask you about something that I I've noticed about particularly David William Sims's contributions to this to this book. There seems to a lot of them <laughs> Many of them seem to suggest a more prickly relationship with Steve Albini and his recordings of the band than I think people might expect. These recordings are, are very <coughs> revered. A lot of clients came to Steve saying, can you make me sound? Well, I don't know if they said this. I wasn't there. But probably my my impression is a lot of people are like, hey, you made the Jesus Lizard records. Can we? Can you record our band and make it kind of sound like that or something? And, and as I say, the, the more David talks about the recordings this prickliness comes up. Can you, what, what, what is going on there? Well, I mean, these guys have a longstanding relationship. They played in a band together. Um, but can you speak to that in any way? What, why, why is the dynamic kind of, I, I kind of can't, um, it's not really my place. I mean, I don't really know exact, I never have understood precisely what the problem is there. I mean, you are right as far as, you know, people, hoping that C would record their band and make it sound like us. I, I know uh, for a fact that when he was recording Nirvana, that Kurt asked him to make him sound like me on a song or two. Mm. So, um, so I know that, uh, yeah, I don't know. You, you, you'd have to, you'd have to ask David that. And uh, if you do, I wish you good luck. <laughs> well, he's quite I think he's quite frank in the book. I mean, he's very specific about these parts were buried and this doesn't sound right. I mean, is your overall when you think back on the sessions and decisions that were and I mean, there's also this contentious like oh, you know, he kind of he only would listen to David Yao and he wouldn't listen to us and he offered too much input and ideas. We just wanted him to record the thing. Do you feel that way? I don't feel that way. That's uh, that's one of the things where uh, Dave and I differ a lot. Hmm. I mean, I, I love recording with Steve, and I like the recordings, except I think Down sounds kind of like poop. And I think the big reason that Down sounds kind of like poop is because Steve was told to shut up and do his job. So, hmm. Hmm. And, he, and he abided by that, for that record? Uh, Steve? Yeah. Uh, sort of, kind of. I mean, that was kind of like a near the beginning of, you know, our sort of falling out, you know, he, Steve got really angry with the band for, uh, I do have to ask Steve exactly why, but, hmm. you know, at that time after, after down came out, it wasn't too long thereafter that we, uh, signed a capital and Steve was upset by that. Um, yeah, so, uh, this is a story that's often told, that it, it and it's told in very black and white terms. The <laughs> band went from an independent label that Steve loved to a major, and then then it, he just basically the, the ties kind of were severed. But it, this book is kind of the first time I've really delved into a, like kind of a history. Like this seemed to be a building tension, at least from David Sims' point of view. Um, I think it, I think it was. I think. Uh... For whatever reason, uh, I think David and Dwayne sort of felt like, um, well, St Steve used to always say that he was an engineer, not a producer. Yeah. I don't know if that's 
to me that's just semantics because he did the work of a, a, a record producer. Um, and so I think that sometimes David and Dwayne would feel like uh, they were unhappy or something with Dwayne, with Steve's production. I don't know. Um, that's uh, uh, that's I, something yeah. I, I, I don't want to... <laughs> <laughs> I understand. I need to talk to them. Uh, I'm asking you for your opinion just because you were there. You, I'm asking, basically, you're a witness in this trial at this point, David. I, yeah, I was there, but as you as is noted in the uh, book, uh, I was really drunk when we made those records. Like <laughs> uh, Specifically, I think on Head, we went in one morning, and uh, they said that I needed to sing pastoral, and I said, no, um, Oh, no, I said I needed to sing pastoral. They said, no, you did that last night. And I said, no, I didn't. And they played it for me. I, I had no recollection at all of singing that song. Should I be laughing at that? Is that a good fact or a sad fact? What does that mean that you don't? Oh, I think it's, I think it's great. <laughs> I mean, you know, I was talking about the Dicks earlier in, um, in Austin, and, and we used to call them drunk rock instead of punk rock because sometimes they'd be playing and, Glenn, the guitar player, who is also now dead, he um he'd be dr- so drunk sometimes he couldn't stand up, but he always played like he was fucking great, <laughs> and uh, so I I I like that idea. Okay. You know, I don't think it, it's not for everybody, and it's not an all-time kind of thing, but uh, I I get a kick out of listening to pastoral and knowing that I was so wasted that I didn't remember it the next day is it is it true that that you once steve at steve's suggestion you sang into a bag or something or you you were you were wearing some kind of bag over your head while trying to do a vocal we did uh, steve had a lot of cool crazy sort of um miking technique ideas and uh i don't remember a bag but there was a trash can we oh had sorry a, that's uh, yeah that's what it was yeah yeah he taped a um uh one of those tiny little, sort of like a Lavalier or a sort of um, contact mic, taped it to the top of my headphones, and I stuck my head and chest and most of torso into a large plastic trash can <laughs> and sang in that. And um, <clears throat> there were a lot of things we did. We, there was one um, where I laid on my back and handheld a microphone to my mouth and then there was another one on a boom stand over my chest, sort of pointing at my mouth. And then there was another one that was suspended from the ceiling, hanging from a cord down to just a little above where I would be. And as the track started, I always took that microphone and swung it so it so it uh, swung in a uh, a circle around me while recording. Wow. Was this all for? There's all kinds of weird phase (laughs) shifting and stuff like that. And was this all during a particular album session, or is this this was throughout the band's working relationship? Um, that one laying down like that, that was on a wheelchair epidemic. Uh Um, there was another one where we had um these two microphones. One was pointing straight up, right in front of my mouth. Then there was another one suspended from the ceiling, directly above that, and they were about. I don't know, like a an eighth of an inch apart or a sixteenth of an inch. And when the tracking started, I would pull one to the side and let go of it so it swings back and forth over the other microphone huh. and would do funny face shifting. And that's on um, 
that's on the song called Seasick. Right. Like there's one point where you hear where I'm going like, it sounds like I'm going, ah, I wasn't doing that. It was a solid note, but the phase was shifting and making that change like that. Ah, okay, interesting. But by the time you got to down, it just that 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 sort of were were the ideas still <laughs> percolating by down? Um, I honestly I don't I don't remember specifics like uh, yeah. others. Yeah. Okay. That's, um, that's fair. I'd have to look at the songs on down. I think I think some fans. I mean, people who know the band well probably saw down as a bit of a disappointment. But for others, I don't know that. I mean, David Sims quite adamantly suggests down is the worst record the band ever released. Do you agree with that? Yeah, I do. Hmm. And it's as much the band's yeah, fa- band's fault as it is the production, or um, well, you can blame. The ultimate, the responsibility lies with the band, yeah. no matter what. So uh, yeah, you you blame the band, but uh, <clears throat> I don't know if the songs are. I think we just didn't. We weren't ready to go in the studio. Maybe mm-hmm. um, either the songs needed more um, more fucking with or what. But I mean, I think it sounds pillowy. It sounds like uh, there's some insulation over the speaker or something like that. Okay. And um, yeah, and particularly when you the, the two records before it were actually all, all the records before it were so much better than it, you know. It's, yeah, yeah, okay. But you know, <clears throat> but everything. But if everything is great, then you have no relativity. You can't tell if something's good because it's all the same. Right. So thank God we put out a shitty record. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, I want to ask you finally, I suppose, about the book, uh, and this may be an obvious question: Does this? strike you as the final chapter if you will uh, about the Jesus lizard you've done reenactment tours the the catalog has been reissued this is a very definitive documentary style overview i i suppose of the of the band's existence are are you does this feel like it's done to you yeah i i kind of hope that it's the last chapter um i have you know doing that Jesus Lizard and the Scratch Acid reenactment tours, um, I had learned to quit saying never. I think I've probably even said, told that to you before. Mm-hmm. But it's possible, you know, that we would do another show. I would just assume not. But if the money is, if you know, if somebody wants to pay us a quarter million dollars for a show, I wouldn't say no. <laughs> um, but, so, but more importantly, I think what we should do is a movie. And that we would actually be producers and directors of it. And, you know, it would get like uh, um, Ryan Gosling to play. Ryan Ryan Gosling is David Yao in the fucking Jesus movie. You know? And we get uh, uh, Danny DeVito is David Sims in the Jesus movie. You know? And we could get, uh, I don't know, George Clooney would be uh, Dwayne. And uh, I think... Uh, um, Catherine Zeta-Jones would be Mac. <laughs> <laughs> lovely, lovely-looking woman. I feel like I don't want to get into recasting, but I feel like the David Yao, Danny DeVito, uh, Ryan Gosling. I, I feel like there's there might some things might be interchangeable there. I, I just feel like getting Gosling. Who is Gosling? Dwayne? No, me. Oh, sorry. Yeah, I don't yeah. know, man. I. <laughs> 
<laughs> I'm I'm not trying to okay, suggest anything. John, no, okay, okay, um, okay. Uh, oh, there's a guy named I think Chris Carter or Chris Cooper. Oh man, the guy who I've been told I look like anyway. Okay, so he's me. Yeah, he does um, look like you. Do you bear resemblance? <clears throat> You've never noticed this? Okay, yeah, either him or Kevin Spacey. <laughs> <laughs> and and then um and then David Sims actually if we could get John Goodman to lose about uh, three fourths of his body weight <laughs> then he would be David. Um, I still think oh and uh, Dwayne would either be uh, I don't know how much of an actor David Byrne is but it'd be either David Byrne or um, Kyle MacLachlan. <laughs> 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 Jay Leno. Jay Leno. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> All right. So the the so when what you're saying essentially is that this might not be the final chapter if the financing for this amazing film comes through. Yeah. Well, like I say, I've 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 quit saying never. Right. But but you did. <clears throat> I do think it's curious. Or it's not curious. It's significant that you said if the right show, <clears throat> the right show comes along. You've been quite adamant. You're not interested in trying to do something creative uh, together. I mean, sorry, that's the, that, dis, that kind of discounts what happens at a live show, but do you know what I mean? Well, yeah, I mean, I don't really have any desire to be in a band at all right now. I'm acting, and that's what I want to do. <clears throat> um, uh, there has been talk bandied around, that, you know, of maybe doing another record or something, but I don't have any desire to do that. And I don't really see how we would do it anyway, being as that David's in Manhattan, Dwayne's in Nashville, Max in Chicago, and I'm in Los Angeles. I can't imagine writing a song, a, a record by sending MP3s back and forth. So <clears throat> I just, but, but I don't want to do it, and I don't, and I don't know how we would do it. All right, let me ask you this: in all of the reenactment uh, activity, sound checking, whatever, rehearsing. Was there anything that came out of that? Like even a semblance of guys just fooling around on something that you were like, oh, huh. Maybe, maybe. Oh, like some, something new? Just, I mean, like, no. I'm, not, I'm not saying new, but I, was there even any, did anyone even begin a jam, so to speak? Did anyone even begin playing something outside of what you were supposed to be playing? Not that I recall. I mean, it's possible, you know, that we worked on a Led Zeppelin song or something, but I, I don't, uh, huh. I, I, not that I recall. Okay. <clears throat> we were never really jamming. We never jammed much. Everyone brought an idea in, and then you fleshed it out together. Sort of, kind of, yeah. Right. So no for one... For the great most part. At no point did Dwayne, for example, be like, hey, you know, I actually have this thing. Maybe we should... And then <laughs> it just fell flat or something. Well, um, it's hard to. I mean, I'm I'm, pri- I, I I, I'm, like, I'm totally prying things here. Bit, you know, things like that. A little bit like that happened. You know, I mean, David or Dwayne or or whoever would come in with uh, some idea, and there would be some jamming based around that. You know, some riffage or something like that. But as far as just uh, okay, go. That never happened. <clears throat> okay. That that to me is slightly sad. <laughs> that, that that to me is sad. Like one of the things that really comes through in the book is this. A lot of people suggest that this is a this band was a rare confluence of people, uh, a rare confluence of players. Something happened when these 
this group of people were together. And the idea to me that you were together on these rather lengthy tours, but never, you know, tried to spark something is, as I say, it, uh, for what it's worth, I think it's a little sad. Hmm. Can you? Make- okay. Well, <laughs> yeah, I, I don't. I don't think it's sad at all. I mean, I think that you know they were so good at being so tight, like you said, mentioned, like the you know the musicianship. Uh, the three of them, like, locked in so tightly that I don't think there was ever a need for them to, like, you know, just do what you would consider, like, a jam. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, I I imagine that at some time they'd probably do that. I, I would never partake in that because I don't really, I don't know, <laughs> I don't know how to vocal, I don't know how to do vocal jamming. Um, <clears throat> Do you, when was the last time you sat down to write a song, David? I mean, but you put out your solo record, so that doesn't count. When was the last time you had like a phrase in your head? Well, the solo record was all done even before Quee. Right. Uh, the last time I wrote down a, wrote a song was with Quee. So you haven't sat, you haven't had a phrase or something come through your mind where you're like, ah, I'm going to capture that. No. Huh. So it's gone. It might be gone. It's currently. It's gone. <laughs> that 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 drive that <laughs> well, you. I have no. Yeah. Yeah. I have no desire to do music. Okay. I mean, there there have been you know occasional collaborations uh, with friends who would ask you know would you do this or you know sing on this song or something, and um, it's almost all of them have been fun, uh, and I hope that that happens you know uh, for years to come. Mm-hmm. But as far as a full time. You know, this is what I do is music. I don't have an interest in that. Okay. I, I apologize. I know I've asked you this question 3,000 times. I feel like every time we speak, I, I'm like, what's going on? But I, it's, you know, I, when I say sad, it sounds melodramatic. But for people who love what you've done, uh, to the, the group of you and you, I mean, it's, you just, you know, it's not nostalgia. It's, it's, a, it's a, the anti-nostalgia. It's like, why not? Why you you are capable of this? <laughs> we all we've all seen it. Why not? Uh, it's demanding on the part of a fan like myself, I suppose, to be like, just do it again. You can do it. We know you well, can. <laughs> well, well, I suppose I should be flattered, but instead, I'm just, you know, that's that's not fair. Yeah. I mean, I <laughs> yeah, that just um. I think not fair is uh, not fair is correct. It's almost a burden at this point that you've done <laughs> such such great stuff and people still want you to 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 keep producing. Stop. Well, well, I'm not. You know, I'm hopefully. You know, I'm going to uh, England in April to shoot a movie where I'm the lead character, and uh, I hope that this continues on. And hopefully, people who like the crap I did in the past will enjoy movies that I do in the future. Right. What's the nature of the film at this point? Can you say anything about it? Yeah, it's called A New York Story, and it's being shot in England, which makes plenty, plenty of sense. Sounds like, but, a, um, sounds like something Woody Allen would do. Right. He's been doing well, that. Well, it, it, it starts and finishes in New York. Okay. And, uh, yeah, I play a, a hitman named Eddie Baker, who is uh, an, Amer- an American guy who fucks up a, uh, a murder and sort of has to get out of town. Hmm. And he hooks up with this English woman and goes back to England with her. 
Right. And uh, starts working there and fucks some stuff up and gets in a mess and uh, ends up having come to, having to come back to the United States. Hmm. And um, that's the uh, that's the movie. Okay. Well, I'm, and so you're only beginning to shoot it in April. Well, hopefully we'll we'll all see it when it comes out. April or May. I think I think they still have some more casting to do. Okay. Uh, there's some, and and there is some really really cool casting that I wish that I could talk about, but that is that is uh, at this point secretive because it hasn't been confirmed. But right. Some, you know, if it if it happens and you will know, you'll know what I was talking about. I'm sorry. Did you mention the filmmaker? This I, I may have missed that. It's written and it's written and produced by a guy named uh, Andrew Barclay. Okay. And his credits might include. Do we know him? I don't know the name. No, he's done some documentary stuff. Uh, his last name is B A R C L A Y. So if you IMDb him, Andrew Barclay, you'll see a New York Story and the other stuff that he's been involved with. Okay, all right, that's great. Um, I want to also ask: the last time you and I spoke, which was uh, seventy-six episodes ago, how many? How many? I don't know. Episode nine. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever that was, uh, I, you you and I spoke about your cat book, which is coming out on Akashic at some point. Uh, can you shed any more light on on this? I saw it in the in the catalog, but I, I don't uh, remember the date that it's coming out. Yeah, I think it's coming out in August. I think August eighth. And um, just uh, two days ago, I got the proofs for the cover, and uh, it looks really good. And I'm really excited about it. Uh, um. It's going to be weird because, you know, here in, what, five or six days, the Jesus Lizard book comes out, and then a few months later, this copy, this uh, cat book comes out, so, um, gee whiz, I'm a published guy. <laughs> You're an author. Who would have known? Yeah. <laughs> Blow me down. <laughs> well, I think you, you gave me a lot of insight about it. This is the cat pun book, right? I mean, there's, there's drawings that depict kind of cat puns that's the idea of the book exactly the whole, yeah, the, the yeah. Whole, okay and 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 the list eventually got up to i think 92 cat puns but uh, there are 74 in the book okay nice so there's 74 yeah. so you just you flip through the book and each thing is just like an image you've drawn with does it indicate the cat pun are we supposed to figure it out uh the facing page says the title of it okay so like you know Cataract is on the right, and then on the left facing page it says cataract. And are you you're so you're a cat guy? Do you have cats now? I am. I have a cat, not quite as large as your orange cat. Oh, you've um, but a little, <laughs> uh, little buddy. My little buddy is about nineteen pounds. Okay, yeah, Gary is. Well, it's been a long winter here, so I think he might have packed on a couple, but I think he. He weighs in around 10, 11 pounds, but uh, he has been a bit dormant because it's fr- ridiculously cold here and he can't go out for too really? long. Really? He looks huge. In that picture on your website, he I, looks huge. I know. People have said that. He is big and long, but uh, there's just something about the composition of the photo or something. Like He, does, he is big. Uh, don't get me wrong, but yeah, he looks like a lion. It almost looks like he's been superimposed upon my body, but he's... Nah, I don't know. Yeah. Just a weird, just a weird angle. He's a beautiful, good boy. And uh, I taught him to sit on command, actually. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Nice, nice work. He was raised with uh, a couple of dogs. And like some of his first, when he was born, he was just immediately around dogs. And I assume he would have heard sit and then saw food. I don't know. Do cats do that? I just, that's my logic. Because we inherited him from our neighbor who was moving. We moved in here 
And then we bought this house, my wife and I, and then this cat kept showing up and the previous owners had a dog, so he would never come in, but he just wanted to explore. And we got friendly with the neighbors. And I'm like, is it okay if Gary shows up here? And they're like, yeah, 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 it's fine. And eventually there was food, snacks, and now he's ours. They moved. He didn't like the move. They took him. They didn't like the move, so they said, can you take him? I'm like, yeah, absolutely. He's my favorite. I love that guy. I can't imagine this place without him. And now he's here, and he's 11, I think. No, sorry, what am I talking about? He's 9, and uh, I don't know why I made him older than he is. He's he's 9, and he's great. Nice. Sorry. And, uh, as far as uh, do cats like uh, uh, take uh, command well, I, I know that you can teach cats to do tricks and stuff like that, but cats that I've had in the past usually – you know, you, you know the cats well enough that you know their behavior, and you can, and oftentimes you can tell what they're about to do. Yeah. And so what you do is you just tell them to do whatever it is they're about to do, and then the people in the room are really impressed. <laughs> yeah. Because if <laughs> if the cat's in the mood and you know it's about to lay down and roll over, you just go roll over, and it does it, and everybody goes, "Holy shit! Wow, that cat's really smart." <laughs> this is not a ruse, David. The thing I'm talking about. Is real. I can make him. It's it's. No, no, I believe you. It's food based. I, I, yeah, I'm not questioning it at all. Yeah, he. It's food based. I have to. If I've got his little, you know, snack treats or his actual food, I say sit, and he'll sit. Just, I mean, it's as much as a trick as a dog learning to sit. You know what I mean? I mean, it's it's not a trick. It's just he's learned to do it, and I like doing it because it makes me feel like he's smart. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and and, uh, and he respects you because it makes him think that you're smart. Yeah, exactly. He's like, oh, okay, I sit, and he seems to say that word, and I get food. I guess that's the deal. I, I can abide by that. I'm a, I'm just a cat. And he, yeah. He controls my fate. Anyway, I assume cat, cat lo- loves cat. Yeah. <laughs> I assume cats will love cats. I assume cats will love this book, but I also assume cat lovers will love this book. I hope so. I mean, Akashic wrote this goofy thing in there. Where it say, oh, um, yeah, and I okayed it, but this is goofy. It says, uh, David Yao's cat portraits, captured here for the first time in book form, are bold, striking, hilarious, and beautiful. Each portrait is based around a pun, but they capture so much more than wordplay. And then, all cat lovers will find something to relish in this gorgeous volume. <laughs> <laughs> that was, sorry, when you read it, it does sound a little amusing. But I, I, I could see yeah. people being enthralled by that description. It sounds... I'm, yeah. I'm curious. I can't wait to see it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, David, we were supposed to talk for like 20 minutes, and I don't know how this happened. I appreciate all of your patience and your time answering these questions. Well, well thank you for your time. And, uh, you know, I hope that David and Mac uh, respond uh, post-haste. There you go, David Yao. What a great man. One of a kind, David Yao, I think. Fair to say. I have nothing but warm feelings and the highest regard for David Yao. I hope you enjoyed that. Tomorrow on the Jesus Lizard Week on this show, Mac McNeely, drummer Mac McNeely and I have an extensive chat about books. So please come back, won't you? It'll be fun. Okay, thank you. Goodbye. Hey, thanks again for checking out Creative Control with Vish Khanna. You can email me about the show at creativecontrol933 at gmail.com. That's creative with a K, control with a K, 933 at gmail.com. You can also follow our Twitter at vishcreative, V-I-S-H-K-R-E-A-T-I-V-E. And you can also like our Facebook page. 
A version of this show airs on CFRU in Guelph every Wednesday at noon Eastern. And you can listen to that online at CFRU.ca or if you're in the KW region at 93.3 FM in Guelph. You can also sign up for the weekly mailing list for the podcast and the, and the show at vishkana.com and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. I believe that is everything I wanted to tell you. Thank you once again. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.